Imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. I'm so happy to have you join us today. I've got a, a really special kind of mystery guest today uh, because he writes anonymously, and you'll see why as we get into our conversation. And he found me, actually, which I, I love, uh, through a connection here on Maui, which I think it's exciting. It's, it's amazing how we connect around the world with different people because we have so much in common. We all deal with different kinds of grief and loss throughout our lives, and, and we meet in interesting ways. So I am very happy to have our guest here with us today, and we have lots to talk about. So, Turner, <laughs> I'd like to introduce you and have you tell us a little bit about you and why you're here. Thank you, Emily. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you and and uh, and talk with you about this. I am uh, an architect by profession. I'm father of of twin boys, uh, originally from Tennessee, small town. So I'm a small town Southern kid who eventually found his way to Harvard as an architect. And it was in Cambridge that this would be in the 1980s, late 1980s, that I met my wife to be on the ballroom dance floor. Uh, it was a rumba, as I recall. And she was from a very old Washington, D.C. family. She was 10 years older than I was. I had done everything I wanted to accomplish up in Cambridge and Boston, went to Harvard, got my master's degree, worked for great architectural firms doing fabulous projects. But it was time to go. And I had chosen Washington. And ironically, that January, first Saturday in January, we met on the bottom dance floor. And Nine months later, we moved to Washington, and two years to the first Saturday in January, we walked down the aisle of the Washington National Cathedral and were married. She was an executive at Hewlett-Packard, very successful. Uh, interesting story there, she was the second non-secretarial female hired at Hewlett-Packard. Wow. She was a glass ceiling buster. She was one of the women that led the way. And uh, she showed me photographs from when she graduated uh, 10 years earlier and was entering the workforce with all these uh, training classes at RCA and uh, these other te early tech companies. And there's all these guys, white guys in skinny black ties and one woman, and it's her. So that's who she was. Uh, we met, we moved, to we moved down here, and uh, I found architectural work as an architect. And we actually, then a recession hit. I got my, my second layoff of my career occurred. And that was actually my first experience being at home and trying to manage things. And, and then uh, eventually the recession ended, got back to work. And then she became pregnant with twin boys. And as she was pregnant, we talked about how we were going to raise them. And uh, our values were in sync, what we wanted to in, impart in our children. Uh, then the boys were born. And what I was doing at the time was not totally fulfilling as an architect. And I posed to her one evening over dinner, what would you think if I stayed home with them? So I became a stay-at-home dad. I actually basically gutted my mid-career as an architect, something I love dearly. 
Um, I finished first in my class at Auburn University in architecture. I graduated with distinction from Harvard. I loved architecture, but I became a stay-at-home dad. And when the boys were five months old, and it was at that time we discovered that one of our twin boys was not developing as his brother was. And that led to, you know, a, to this day, a lifelong journey of um, being a special needs parent and trying to educate him, help him grow, become who he is. As I mentioned, she was an executive Hewlett Packard. She was there for 31 years. And when the boys were about 11 years old, and I had been a stay-at-home dad 11 years, she was workforce reduced, as they called it euphemistically, uh, when New Hewlett Packard made an ill-fated merger with Compaq at the time. Um, and she was uh, let go. And that that really sent her to, to a tailspin. I learned early on in our marriage that she suffered from mild to moderate depression, and it would vary. It was under control with some medication. She even kept a spreadsheet of all the medications she took. Uh, she always wanted to, to beat this and try to be on top of it. But when she was let go or workforce reduced from Hewlett Packard, it sent her into a tailspin in 2005 that she never fully recovered from. Uh, I went back to my career as an architect. She became the parent at home. We fought battles for my disabled son, which eventually led to, as I said, I'm an architect, but I decided I was going to run for Congress after our congressman, let's just say, behaved badly when I took an issue to him that was uh, on something that was affecting her son. So here, all this was going on. And she went, it was a long descent over the the five years, uh, two years before she passed away and took her own life. She told me she was going to be leaving me and the boys and I didn't understand. I, I didn't know if she was telling me she wanted a divorce or whatever. It turned out she finally confessed she was going to be taking her life and leaving me and the boys. And with a lot of work with her therapist, we got her to voluntary, voluntarily commit. And she came out with new therapists, new medications, and new optimism. But the truth of the matter was that the downward trajectory continued. And it was the day after Mother's Day in 2010 that she took her own life. And I will tell you that her, her mother, my mother-in-law, was a constant companion. And I was all in in trying to help her because she was all in in trying to help herself. And we had some very tough conversations along the line of one night when she said out of frustration, everybody would be better off without me. And I said, okay, babe, let's say you, and I'm sorry to, to be so harsh in the, the way I say this, but it's what I said. Let's say you kill yourself. What am I supposed to do? You know, I have the two boys, one who's disabled. What am I supposed to do? And she said, you're the most capable man I've ever met. You'll figure it out. I said, that's the biggest cop out I've ever heard. And she said, well, that's my answer. So we had numerous conversations like that. But she tried mightily to beat this. We were looking at some out-of-the-box therapies and treatments for the depression. So she was all in. I was all in. Yet it was not enough. And then she took her own life. I'm blessed to be to have married into a, a, a wonderful 
large in-law family with a lot of relatives here in Washington. Our church rushed to support us, family rushed to support us, but nothing can can prepare you for for that. And some of the cliches turned out to be right, you know, one day at a time and one foot in front of the other. But in those days, weeks, and months, I I, I didn't know how this was supposed to work. I didn't know how I was going to get through the end of each day. As I think I told someone, and I wrote in my recent memoir that I that was just published, to Venus and Back, Woman's Quest to Rediscover Love. When I tried to find life and love a few years later, I dreaded the end of each day and going to bed alone. And then I dreaded the mornings and doing it all over again. There's no playbook for this. There's no playbook. And I immediately rushed in. My special needs son was get, had a special therapist at the time. He converted everything to grief counseling for us as a family. I found uh, a grief counselor here with Washington Hospice. She was terrific, but she struggled to find support for someone who had lost a loved one through suicide. And it took her nine months. And I remember her calling me. She was she was excited and hopeful. She found a group. And it was being amongst other individuals who lost loved ones, sons, daughters, son-in-laws, brothers, sisters, husband, wives, and hearing their stories. And the two women who facilitated the group actually survived suicide attempts in their youth. They were in their 50s, but they both in their late teens and early 20s tried to take their own lives. And over the course of those three months, I, I finally began to come out of my my tailspin, my dive, whatever you want to call it. I remember in the months after she passed away that summer, I just didn't want to see anyone. I would, the boys would go to sleep on Sunday nights and I would go to the grocery stores on Sunday nights at 10 in the evening because no one would be there uh, because I desperately didn't want to run into anyone I knew or talk to anyone. I just, I just wanted to be alone. And that just continued for so long. And I, I never knew how that was going to change. How's this supposed to work? And it was my mother-in-law, Mary, um, God bless her. Uh, it was about two years, almost to the month. We had weekly dinners and she she came and we were talking and I said, Mary, I I just can't carry this with me anymore. The, the events of what happened, it's absolutely crushing me. And she said, um, then let's do something about it. And she said, and I'll help. Let me know what I can do. And it was... And then she added with a very wry smile and a look on her face. I'll never forget. And she said, and maybe a new woman in your life might be nice. Maybe. And I said, I really needed to hear that from you, Mary. And that was the beginning of my odyssey that I write about my memoir. To Venus and back, uh, three years, or to Venus and back, one man's quest to rediscover love. Without Mary's support, I don't think I would have gotten through this. We 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 helped each other get through it. So that's that's a very long description of who I am and where I've been and where I am today. That was I lost my wife 13 years ago this year. And I've come a long way. The my twin boys who were 14 at the time are now 27. And so much has changed. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. That that was a whole lot to share, but I think it's important for people to hear because people don't talk about the reality of suicide. I've learned in the last couple of years to say death by suicide as opposed to committing suicide because the committing suggests something entirely different than somebody dying. Committing is sort of illegal. I know it's illegal in some states, Mm -hmm. um, but I I got news for folks. Look, people are in charge of their own lives, um, which is the way it should be. It Um, is. That's interesting. I did. I. I. The. The. The way I've come to describe it when someone asks, "How does your wife die?" I do it like this. I say, "My wife lost her lifelong battle with depression and took her own life." So she took her own life. And I, yeah. until you just said what you said, I've never given that much thought. I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, an accurate way, or not. But that's how I have come to describe it as a way to sort of fill in a little bit of background very quickly for people who don't know what's the answers that's coming, that's about to come and hit them. Uh, and they often regret having asked the question when I give them that answer, but that's how I describe it. She she lost her lifelong battle with depression and took her own life. That's, that's a good way to do it. And it, it's, it kind of opens a door for people to understand that, that there's so much more to it than we'll ever know about anybody who does this. And I think, I I was thinking about how many different people in my lifetime that I've known who have died by suicide. And it it was kind of shocking to me when I started adding them up, that it's it's not uncommon at all. The the hardest one for me was, um, I've been very involved in theater my whole life, and I was directing the play, the musical, Oliver. And oh, wow. I, I I love that show. Yes, it was just yes, great. It's great. It's terrific. And it was the the Civic Light Opera where I lived. And so it was mostly adults, but there are children in, in the show. And so we had a, a wide variety of people there. And we got along really well during the show. It was an excellent production. Turned out, you know, everybody was just very supportive of each other and it was really good. And within two months after the show was over, both the man who played, and I cannot remember the name of the character, the the lead, but the, the man who played the lead in the show and the, the man who played Artful Dodger in the show, who were friends through that show, but it wasn't like they were doing anything right. else besides that. Both of yeah. them ended up dying by suicide. Oh, my. That's... Uh, that's do you think there was a connection? Do you no, think I, I don't. I think I think it was. Her? I don't think either one of them. I don't think they had talked about it. I really don't. I think it was just coincidental, and I don't know if one of them heard about the other one and thought, "Oh, well, that could solve my problems too." They they each had their their own issues that they were keeping from everybody else. Right, one, of them, right, one of them was right. a a very beloved high school teacher, gorgeous man, and yes. he was bipolar and didn't want anybody to know. That's uh, somewhat similar to my wife. Uh, she was a stunningly beautiful woman. And the, the kind of person who, when she walked in a room, just lit it up. And I, I I shared a little bit with you about her accomplishments professionally. Mm-hmm. You know, she rose to the executive rank. So here was a, a powerful woman, a beautiful woman, the, the kind of person that anyone would look at and go, wow, you've got it all. Yeah, behind that, 
was was this struggle and she hid it a few close friends knew and then of course when it happened and i obviously shared it's always the question why Mm -hmm. i tried to explain there were a few friends i think even to this day in fact, I had a dinner with someone who she worked with at Hewlett Packard, who known her for a decade before I met my wife. Um, just on Saturday night, asked if I'd only known I could have done something. And, you know, she tried mightily, my wife. I went down into the depths where, as far as one can go, who is not the one suffering from depression. I was all in. I had this conversation with my mother-in-law. She was very frustrated a couple of years before that she wasn't getting all the information she thought. I don't know what's going on with her. And I talked to my wife about it. I said, your mom, Mary, is is upset. She she wants to know, can I share with her everything that happens with you, with us? Is that okay? And again, to my wife's credit, she said, yes. You can tell her everything. So I had this conversation with Mary, my mother-in-law, out at my my driveway my, my one evening. And she was expressing her frustration again at not knowing. And I said, look, Mary, we all have to make a decision. And some of her friends made a decision. My wife's behavior could be not kind. And she would be, she would get upset after the fact when she had the self-realization hit her how she behaved and how she treated someone. And I told Mary that, look, everybody's got to make their own decision with this for her, with her, either you're in or you're out. And we, we know we've, she's lost a few dear friends who said they're out and I'm all in Mary. I'm all in. And you need to decide that too. And she called back the next day and said, I'm all in. I'm all in. That's wonderful. Just a remarkable woman. Uh, they, they were both remarkable women. Anyway, I, I so many stories like that I could share. I don't know how many how many you'd like to hear, but but that was a, a real defining moment when I had to tell my wife's mother, are you in or, or ask, are you in or are you out? And I said, I'm in. And she was in too. That, that's so wonderful that you could have that conversation because so many people in in similar situations, the, the conversation never comes up and then they beat themselves up when it's too late to have done anything. You're right. And there's a lot of avoidance as well. Mm-hmm. A lot. Uh, uh, also fortunate. And my wife was also fortunate to have a very dear friend. Again, going back decades before I met my wife, uh, my wife was a superb soprano singer. So she sang in a lot of singing groups. And a friend from her 20s went to our church and knew what was going on because they were best friends. And I would often get calls from uh, this friend who had had an interaction with my wife and expressed concern. So I was very blessed. I was very lucky. And I know there are so many who don't have the blessings, the support that I had. I'm especially familiar with the stories here in Washington, D.C. about, um, and it happens around the country, but you, there's a little more focus here about veterans and suicides. And so many don't have the support that I was fortunate to have. And uh, in, in the aftermath of that, it's so difficult. There, there just is no playbook. And 
I didn't know what to do. I knew I had to uh, take care of my children. I had a special needs child, and we were looking to try to put him into a school in Massachusetts, 450 miles away. I was fighting my school system. Uh, they were saying, oh, let's take a break. We know we, we, we know your wife just we don't need to do this right now. I said, nope, we are going to keep going because she was all in on this, too. We're going to keep battling. I eventually did win that battle that fall in part because of some things my wife had done uh, a year before. And, and you just don't know. I, I took five months off work. I was fortunate to be able to take five months off work to sort of right the ship, as I called it, to focus on everything that I had to deal with. Then went back on, a I think, a four-day week schedule to the new year. And that just helped immensely. There's, there's the paperwork. We had all of our state and everything done properly, but the paperwork just goes out the wazoo. Uh, but the other issues, especially with my disabled son, and my other son was about to start high school. You know what all that's about. And then when I finally gave the green light, I told family members, I need time. I'll, I'll let you all know when I can talk. And it took about six weeks. So that it's about mid-June. I sent out a, a letter, email to everyone. Um, I said, I'm ready. And the family members and the friends came in quickly and hard with difficult questions. Uh, I know one question of... My um, wife's father had remarried and had some other siblings, so she had some half-sisters or brothers, and one in particular that my wife was close to was concerned that she was about to follow the same path. Uh, and I didn't know that she was suffering any any amount of depression. And as we talked of, over the course of many long-distance phone calls, she became assured that, that uh, my wife's path was was very different and what she was dealing with was very different but multiply those conversations conversations by about 20 or 30 there are people who and there's only one person who can answer that question in my case that was me so when i was ready to talk about it they were just they didn't hesitate now obviously it's helpful to talk to all these people that you've known who are families and uh, family members and friends. But every time you talk about it, you relive it. And, and even now, 13 years later, as, as we talk, I, I recently did an interview as sort of uh, helping to support my, my recent memoir by authority magazine uh, and to the reporter's credit um, hit this head on. I gather she had the same loss. You know, I lost a loved one to suicide and here's what you need to know. And I debated with some friends whether I could write this. It was a written interview format. I wasn't sure I could do this. And it was just published about three weeks ago. And I told the publisher, I said, I, this is the hardest thing I've done in a very, very long time because you have to go back there. But as family members reached out to ask their questions, you know you have to answer them because they're just, they're, 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 they're heartbroken, and they want to know the, the answers to the question, why? And there were multiple answers, and they needed explanations. So, you know, I wish there was a playbook for this. And when I found the suicide support group with the other individuals, there were 12. Certainly heartbreaking stories how, you know, some of their loved ones, they didn't know they suffered some depression, some they did. Notes that were left, notes that were not left. It's different in every circumstance. Uh, obviously, 
the the pain is obviously similar. I was the only one who had not sort of publicly disclosed how she passed away. And there were some unique circumstances that had to do with our children that uh, was behind that. I actually caught some grief from them in the group. Um, they gave me a hard time for not being honest and, and you know, forward, you know, straightforward with it. But uh, there were reasons that I I tried to explain a bit. I didn't want to go into the details, especially since it involved my children. Bottom line is I, everybody's different. There's no playbook and you have to do what's right and you will feel what's right. But that cliche, you know, time heals all wounds, doesn't heal them all, but it does begin to heal. And you do just have to put one foot in front of the other, even though you want to just, if somebody tells you that, you just want to, you know, flip them off and tell them to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you dare give me that advice. Don't you dare tell me that. Um, you have no idea. So, I can really uh, understand that. And yeah. This, this is so many people. I, I was looking at numbers with, with suicides and, the number of people, the, the high rates of, of death by suicide in, in our country, uh, more so than other countries, yes. it's something we have to pay attention to. And I'm I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you because it, it make, it'll make people think when they listen to this. But I do want to get beyond this. I, I could talk with you or listen to you talk about this for hours, but I do want to get to your book that, that just came out because it's it's really different. And I think there's a real place for it for just as there aren't enough um, grief groups for people dealing with loss by suicide, there isn't a whole lot of help there with, okay, now you are at the point in your grief that you want to start establishing what's next in your life and how yes. you're going to move yes. forward from here. It's yes. not that you get over it, you know, that doesn't happen, but but you, there comes a point when it's time for you to start really taking care of yourself. And that's kind of basically what your book is about, with it, it um, is. Yes. how to uh, enter the, the dating scene. And I did a little of that between husbands and Fortunately, I didn't have to do it too long because it I was, was just, how did that go? Oh for you? my <laughs> gosh, it was grueling. I'll, I'll tell you one, one of the things that popped into my mind off the top of my head was this one guy I had been on just one dating app because I thought I'm just going to look and see what it is. Cause I don't, I don't know what I want to do. Yes. Yes. And I, I connected with two different guys. One of them, everything he said was not true. I met him mm. for coffee and I'm six feet tall and he was about five, five. And he had told me that oh. he was six, two. <laughs> oh, no. Oh. And I thought, okay, this isn't going to work because that's just, that's just a big lie. It doesn't, height doesn't make that much difference to me. The lie made big difference to me. That's the part I just never got. So uh, again, the, the title of my book is The Venus and Back, One Man's Quest to Rediscover Love. And it's it, as it was pointed out to me by some early readers, it's not just a, a book about dating. It's a book about uh, life and a quest to heal, uh, which I was totally un unaware of that I wrote about. But the deception deception's uh, crazy. was never ending. What did you think was going to happen at the moment when this came out? Yeah. It, it just kept, you know, that's just the way people were. The other one, the, the, of those two guys, the other one, 
what my my husband was a professor at the local community college. And this man was a professor at the local community college. And I figured they, it was a big community college, but they had to have known each other in some way. Right. My last name, my husband's last name was Thoreau, the T-H-I-R-O-U-X. Not going to find a whole lot of those around. <laughs> and so this this guy, reading his his description, he was he was in agriculture. He taught in the, in agriculture. Really had some interesting things to talk about. We went out for coffee and we're having a really interesting conversation. And I said, "So, how long have you been at the college?" And he he told me how long he'd been there. And he says, "But you know, it's just not fun anymore because." They've got this guy in there now that's that is the president of the union right now, and he he just he's a jerk and he does all this stuff that I don't agree with. And I said, um, "Do you mean Jacques Thoreau?" And he said, "Yes." And I said, "Did you notice what my last name was?" <laughs> and he was he was kind of appalled that he had done that. And my husband was the furthest thing from a jerk. He was one of those guys that everybody loved him. This guy just happened to disagree with him as far as the well, union. And I said, "Bye." <laughs> you know? I, thought, uh, I don't think this is going to be worth it. But ultimately. Yeah, the stories are crazy, and I, the I stories are crazy. And I, I had unique circumstances. I actually was able to retire at age fifty-five, and my I mentioned my disabled son. He did enter a school in Massachusetts, and I was uh, had decided with my mother-in-law Mary that I was going to try to keep him there after he finished his eight years there. And in order to do that, I had to establish a presence in Massachusetts, and I basically just sort of gave up my life here and, and moved up there sort of a split state existence. And there's always that one thing that you need when people say, you know, you ought to write a book. And that's time. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, I had the time. So after the three years of intensive dating, I'm an architect, so everything's sort of project-based. So I kind of made this a project when I finally got to go ahead from my mother-in-law, Mary, that night, who said, and you know, Mary, maybe a new woman in your life might be nice. That was sort of the green flag, and off I went. And it was a crazy three years, and the, the stories were so unbelievable. I knew that uh, women wrote dating books for women. And as I shared with you earlier and tell people, spoiler alert, men don't fare very well. And there are dating books by men for men that are sort of bro books with locker room mentalities. And depending on your perspective, the women don't fare well, or the men themselves, the authors don't fare very well. But there was no book by a man about women for women for dating. And I thought I could pull this off. And I was, I, my friends and supporters and family members thought I could too. So I, that's, that's where the idea of the book came from. And then I was able to share I swore I was not going to write about how my wife passed away because it was still too raw and I couldn't do it. But some circumstances arose that are shared in the book that I had to. And um, so obviously, looking back, it was a very therapeutic experience, cathartic. It was um, a good thing for me to do to help get myself back into life. But I regretted the three years that I lived <laughs> that I wrote about because it was so... Um, crazy. I will tell you that I was called on the carpet very early on. And to her credit, although she was rather blunt about it, there was, um, uh, when I went on online dating, I did eHarmony, I, I very quickly connected with a woman who was originally from France and invited me to go play tennis. We had a phone call. 
and she had no bones. She came out and said, are you ready? I said, am I ready to date? She said, no. Are you ready to have a woman in your life? And I said, well, you know, I'm just sort of stepping back out into the world. And she said, what kind of answer is that? <laughs> and she invited me to play tennis five days later. She said, I want you to think about this between now and then. I want you to have an answer for me when we play tennis on Saturday. And uh, I met her at the tennis court and we, we unfortunately got rained out. So we had lunch and she started probing in that area again. And then we, we switched to something for about 30 minutes. And then she circled back around and she dove right in. She said, if you're not ready to have a woman in your life right now, then you're wasting every woman's time that you want to or try to meet. So she was telling me, don't do it. And I, in my head, I'm going, I, I'm still in the one foot in front of the other stage, trying to just figure out. And where I was in that moment was just try to keep moving forward. But here, here was someone, you know, pulling away the green flag and putting out the red flag to stop to say, hey, if you're not ready, don't do it. So all I knew was I needed to move forward. I moved forward awkwardly. I moved forward without confidence a lot of the time, uh, certainly unsure. The only thing I was sure about was I needed to move forward. Here was a way and a path to do it. And I hoped and I prayed that as I moved forward, uh, it, it would be revealed to me what was right for me, what was wrong for me, what I needed to do. Talk about just sort of walking in the dark. That's what it felt like, but I knew I needed to move. And what uh, what a what a three year journey it was, and it was always fascinating. And of course, you would appreciate this. For but for me as a man to hear the stories from the women I met, and there were fifty four women in three years that I met. There was a one year relationship in the middle, but to hear the stories of their exes, they were almost all they were widows later because I decided I needed to meet widows because they would get stuff that I didn't have to explain. But the uh, the sordid tales of what the men had done in their marriages and what they thought was okay to do or what they thought they could do and get away with, you've 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 probably heard more stories than I've had. But it, it's just stunning what what folks do to each other out there in this great big crazy world. You know, it truly amazing. is. It, it it is really amazing, and I I found it fascinating to uh, read your book with all the different things that came up. And I thought, boy, people who are thinking about trying to figure out how to move forward and how to, to do something next, there's not a lot out there for them to read, especially from the male perspective. And I just think that yours is a really good book for people to read. And I hope they will uh, do that. I hope they'll, That's they'll very reach kind out and do that. That's very kind of you. Um, I, I will tell you, I will share with you that uh, I wrote the manuscript and then I was able to share this with about 20 female beta readers. And the response, favorable, unfavorable, was about 70% favorable and 30% unfavorable. And the 30% unfavorable centered around the fact that I wrote the book at all. They thought it was inappropriate that I would share these stories. Now, all the personal details and names are changed throughout, including my name, of course, uh, to protect the identities of the women. But that was sort of the ratio. But I would also tell you that the 30% that read it, and some of these were anonymously recruited women from friends book clubs. So they didn't know me. They didn't know anything about it. It's just, would you read this book? 
and give this guy some feedback. Uh, even as they said, even as they sort of called me on the carpet for writing the book, I asked them, well, did you enjoy reading the book? And they go, oh, yes. Oh, oh I love reading the book, but I don't think you should have written it. <laughs> so That's there you funny. go. There you go. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, you were you were very um, specific in experiences that you had. And I really thought that was kind of good because people uh, often don't fess up to what they think or what they do. And they see that yes. somebody else actually did that. And you go, oh, well, maybe I'm not so strange after all. Or, <laughs> you know, other people like that, too, you know. The response has been interesting. I, I, this is a self-published book, and I used a publishing consultant uh, from Denver who is a very accomplished woman. And uh, someone asked her, I had a, uh, I can't remember quite who it was, but someone asked, what did you think of Turner's book? And initially she shared, she goes, okay, so here's this guy. He went to Harvard. He ran for Congress. This is going to be a real yawner of a book. <laughs> and she read it. And she, as she was getting into it, she sent me an email one morning. She goes, okay, you owe me a ream of paper because my routine is, is that I will print out 10 pages of the current book that I'm helping get published and I'll walk it to Starbucks and read it. And she said, I'm going to have to read this in a week, but it's going to take about 400 pages and you owe me a ream of paper. <laughs> uh, so it it has resonated with with almost everyone who's read it, except for that 30 percent who who confessed, even though they liked the book, they thought it was wrong that I wrote it. Yeah. And that, that gets into all the different morals that people have or think they have and things that people say are right or true and yes. you know yes. the, those answers are different for everybody and yes. i liked the the fact that you had so many different people in there that it's not like you're just choosing a, a type and sticking with only one thing that that's impossible you can't do there that was, there, <laughs> there was no one type i i in, in early in the book i talk about you know being in high school and how most boys are intimidated by girls and i i use the analogy of uh sort of a star trek analogy of of the collective where all the minds are connected so i talked about the female collective and it felt like to us hapless boys in high school that all the women were connected and, and against us hapless boys which was not true but it takes you a while to figure that out right and i learned uh as i went through this that Indeed, especially at this part of life, people in their late 40s and 50s, everybody's different. Their experiences are different. Their expectations are different. And you cannot make any general assumptions. And that was probably one of the biggest revelations of all was, you know, okay, so I've met 20 women now. Say, oh, I've probably got some idea how this is going to work. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You have no idea what's coming. Everybody leaves separate, very different lives. And I was lucky enough, unlucky enough to have to go through this because of the loss of my wife. But one of the uh, things that I, I feel like I am blessed with, I did go through it. I learned about what is out there in this big, great, big, crazy world. And you can't make assumptions. You can't make assumptions about individuals because they're, they're so different, their dreams and aspirations. And some of the things they think are okay that are not to do. But I did learn that everybody just wants to make a connection and how important that connection is to people, even though that connection may 
need to be a little different for them for it to work. There was a strong desire to make a connection and it was quite a ride. And that's why I decided to name the book to Venus and back, obviously alluding to the book from the nineties, men are from Mars, um, women are from Venus, because it felt like I went to a totally different world. It was something I had to go through to get to my place of healing ultimately. And I realized when it was time to stop, and it was ironically a woman I met who was suffering from some mental uh, uh, depression issues. And for somehow it just made it all click. I did do some self-help and I'll, I'll, I guess I'm giving them a plug. I it, it was in February of that that third year, sort of halfway through. And my mother-in-law had passed away and I was in a bad spot. And I said, I need a rest and a reboot. So I booked a week at Canyon Ranch in, in Arizona just to get away. I needed to get away. I wanted something different. I wanted to cook a little better for myself, try to get a little healthier. And I came back from that week, as I describe, with an energy I had not had since my wife passed away. And even though I continued with the online dating for about three or four months, I realized that I was very one very lucky guy. I was very blessed. I had wonderful family. I had wonderful friends. You know, you don't need to go out and find something. You've got it. And it, but it took that incredible three years that I write about to figure it out. So in that regard, I'm glad I did it. I regret that I had to do it to figure it out, but I figured it out. And I, I am, I'm a very blessed guy. I really am. You are. And congratulations for figuring that out. That's just, that's such an incredible accomplishment and, and Thank you. a shining example for people to see that it's possible. They can do it. It is possible. Just know there's not a playbook. I will, I will, I will give you one. I will share this that was given to me. We had a behavior consultant for my special needs son that was actually on the West Coast when she found out my wife had taken her own life, and she called long distance, and she said, "Okay, I want you to just listen for a minute." She gave me the best advice that anyone gave me. She said, "I want you to understand that for the next year, there are no wrong decisions that you can make." Every decision you decide to make is the right one. Do not second guess what you have decided. You get this pass for one year. And it was one of the best pieces of advice I received. And it, it helped immensely. Since I didn't know what to do, since I didn't know where to go, since there was no playbook for this, for her to say that there are no wrong decisions took some amount of weight some amount of, you know, of all the things that go through your head, it relieved me of just enough to help. So if if I'm able to pass that on through through your show to others, just know that when you get hit with an experience, some traumatic event like this, a loss that's profound, and you don't know what to do, you get a bit of a free pass because there's just no playbook for this. The decisions you make will be the right ones for you. Don't second guess them. Wow, oh, thank you for that. Thank you so much for our listeners. I'm I'm sure that people are going to hear that and they're going to act on that. And I appreciate that gift for them. I have appreciated having you here today so much. We're talking about different things than anybody else is talking about. And it's it's a conversation that needs to happen. So I'm just thrilled it, it that does. you're here. 
I, I'm so glad that I'm so glad that you you were there uh, to be able to to have this conversation with me and to give me a chance to share and uh, that you have so many listeners who care. So uh, congratulations to you for for what you do. And thank you for what you do. Oh, thank you very much. And we will have all about Turner's book in our show notes so that you can get your own copy. And I, I really recommend it. It's quite a read. And I give it to people who you think might uh, get something from it also, because it's it's a story that needs to be told. And also, you can follow Turner's example of writing about your experience. You know how I feel about writing. I've written about mine, and I have our meetings every Sunday on Zoom that you're welcome to come to that don't cost anything, but we write together and talk about grief and do happiness practices and make friends with Thing, people who have things in common when it might be kind of hard when you're dealing with with grief to find people that get you and and we get you at our group so I would be happy to have you come there too that's a so, real gift that you that you offer that that's that I and I can say that from the heart and experience that's a real gift thank you very much I I appreciate that I appreciate you being here and I'll I'll be back next week with uh, another show for you on a totally different topic because they all seem to turn out that way. And I'm happy that you're here. Thank you so much for coming. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.